0: Change management in social sector organizations is challenging. It's super broad, has lots of interlocking and interdependent parts, is full of issues related to people and psychology, and you have to be politically astute if you want to shepherd organizational change in civil society organizations. So you'd better learn this from a pro. Enter Barney Talek former longtime Oxfam leader, including as head of change management at Oxfam International and director of strategy. Barney is now a fellow consultant. Listen to his advice on people-centric as well as politically astute approaches to change management. And if you value this episode, please help other social sector leaders find the podcast by leaving me a review on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast or on Spotify. Now. On to the show. Hello and welcome to NGO Solon Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfheiken and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society and philanthropic organizations manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen organizational effectiveness. If you are in an international civil society leadership position or are aspiring to grow towards that, this podcast is for you. Good day, everybody. Uh, Happy to be back with you all at my podcast, NGO Sol and Strategy. And today we are talking with Barney Tallick. And Barney, as many of you know, has worked in the NGO social justice and not-for-profit sectors for nearly 30 years. He's held senior leadership and board member roles in a variety of international and UK organizations. He was the director of strategy and transformation at um, at Oxfam in successive roles he has a lot of background in supporting restructuring of organizations restructuring of governance as well uh, in ngos as well as mergers and acquisitions as the director of strategy Barney uh, for Oxfam International, Barney ran the global strategy process, the, the last one before the, the current one that was initiated. And for five years, he also directed the global transformation and change work at Oxfam International. In the meantime, Barney has transitioned into independent consulting and he has provided consultancy support to Concern Worldwide, Islamic Relief. Teir de Zalm, CBM International, and a range of other organizations. And Barney has also been a board member for numerous NGOs. And Barney and I go back a long way, and I'm really uh, proud and happy about that. We collaborated in a couple of ways on change management issues when he was the director for um, change management and transformation at Oxfam. Barney was also a visiting transnational NGO initiative fellow at Syracuse University when I led the TNGO initiative there. And he did a really interesting piece of applied research on how INGOs should think about and prepare for the legacies that they wish to leave behind. And we're going to return actually to that topic towards the end of this podcast. And Barney and I have collaborated on a book, of which I'm a co-author, together with George Mitchell and Hans-Peter Schmitz. This book will come out next month, actually, June 2020, with Oxford University Press. It is titled Between Power and Irrelevance, the Future of Transnational NGOs. And Barney contributed to a couple of chapters, and he also wrote The Afterword, which we were very grateful for. And we're also still thinking how we could um, share our joint knowledge on change management with INGO clients and the broader NGO community. So as I said, we go way back, and it's my absolute pleasure to talk today um, in this podcast. Barney and I will talk first for um, uh, some time about change management, this very kind of nebulous topic that uh, that nonetheless, is always very relevant and probably as relevant now during our pandemic as it is at any point. Um, And towards the end, I will also then bring it to the current moment in terms of the the impacts and implications of the pandemic uh, on the financial forecast for NGOs and how CEOs and boards should respond to that. So we're going to devote a good chunk of time to that as well. So Barney welcome to our podcast
1: it's a pleasure and uh, as you say we've collaborated many times on many things so this is this is wonderful lovely it's,
0: to, lovely it's a, a lovely conversation to uh, to kind of sum that up so let's talk first about change management Tell me a little bit about how you define that term change management. It truly does sound rather numberless, doesn't it? How do you define it in your work when you were a practitioner at Oxfam? And how do you define it now as a consultant working with INGO leaders?
1: So uh, I think, uh, Daniel, I have positive and painful experiences uh, <laughs> in terms of either leading or supporting uh, Change management efforts, and you know they don't all work as well. So, um, I think in the wider sense, it is really uh, boards and leadership teams, other leaders who might be distributed all over the organisation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: understanding and their purpose. And, you know, the purpose of the organisation, the mission, and that you know to stay relevant, you need to play a role. As I always say, you need to play a role. That is wanted by the wider movement by the wider social justice movement or the wider environmental justice movement or human rights movement however however you want to categorize it so starting in that place that says what is it the what is the role that is most useful and where we can serve the wider the wider mission Mm -hmm. mission but the wider mission so starting at that place well then you know so what's what's the mission what's the purpose what's our approach and also, what does that approach mean for how we we are, are also internally organised? So, if our approach is one of holding you know, duty bearers to account, uh, you know, and enabling active citizens, how does that how does that work in terms of in terms of how thinking? So, at that top level, very it's a huge umbrella. I know mm. you've got that. Some boards and leadership teams I've seen have wanted to go straight to the structure question. Mm. So they, they don't necessarily want to do the, the function piece they they want to go straight to straight to form so I think having that common understanding uh, at the top um, so not just vision but political will you need that creates an environment um, and then yeah it moves into you know you've got all the different you've got all the different elements which is you're taking you're taking people on a journey where you don't know what the answer is you don't know where the end point is.
0: Right. Anyone who says
1: it, it's a point A to point B uh, journey does is don't listen to them. <laughs> it's, <my advice. laughs> yeah, you know, it's always it's always building the ship uh, while sailing. And uh and cover yeah, the change management element covers, yeah, I say people don't go to structure, but it covers sleep culture, it covers power, it covers dynamics and relationships which are often unequal and you know, people not realizing they're unequal. Um, and you know it's not just what do we do around here and how do we do it but mm-hmm. you know, symbols and rituals and all those all those elements as well so mm. yeah it's a huge thing uh, there's yeah there are i would say there are there are probably no boundaries when everything is interrelated and actually the boundary between your organization and the outside of your organization is very porous indeed and so also don't think about change management as a you know, hermetically sealed internal thing it's actually how you're changing and coming back to that role please. how are you changing in relationship to those other actors in the in the wider movement so huge not not confined um and if, if anything i'd say you start with a mindset and work out and work out for that how do you see the world how do you see what is your vision for the world how do you take all the resources and assets, people and otherwise, towards achieving our mission.
0: Right, right. And I will return to the the, the one of the topics you mentioned, the political will and power, a little yeah. later on in in this episode. Um, so, personally, what have you found to be the most interesting or rewarding about the art and science of change management? And yeah. you have such a depth in that both as a practitioner in INGOs and as a consultant you said in the beginning there are very rewarding aspects and a very painful one obviously we'll we'll get to uh, to both but what was the most rewarding for you so far i think
1: the most rewarding is working with formal and informal leaders who ah. say this is this is where we need to go and doing that because they can see this is how the mission is going to be achieved more effectively. So, especially ones who have been around maybe for a long time. So, interestingly, I, when I did the Oxfam process, there was we did one of those lines. We have everybody standing in a line based on how long you've been with the organisation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the group of us who were at the end of the at the end of the line, we'd all been there like twenty to twenty-five years, and okay. we were the change. We were the change team. And I thought, wow, that's quite interesting. And it was, we, it, you know, it turned out we were all the non conformists within the organization who were, we knew the organization, but we weren't, we weren't as constrained maybe by the, by the baggage. That's really interesting. I know. So that, that's rewarding. And when you work with leaders in other organizations who've got that passionate commitment, they've got the vision, the political will, but also are willing to um, be self critical. Not just personally, but about their organization. I think that's great because that's when you get these leaps leaps forward. Mm. Uh, Rather than necessarily, you know, we want to steer the super tanker and we'll just, we'll move, we'll do a course correction of five degrees. Those people who say, you know, because the mission is so important, we need to do things better than we're doing at the moment. And that might mean really, really changing the organization. As you can imagine, the flip side, the, yeah. the painful moments, right, uh, are the are the opposite. Where you're sat in a a board meeting uh, or a, with a leadership team, and particularly in the families, where one or two member organisations just dig their heels in and say, "No, no, no, we don't, we don't want to do that. We don't want to change," and it just slows everything down for, mm. for everyone. And that's where, yeah, that's when you really are in super tanker. In super tanker
0: mode. Mode, yeah. right? I want to follow up um, um, with that. In you're mentioning, and and I think you did that intentionally. Of uh, you said, uh, working with formal but also informal mm-hmm. leaders, and I've yeah. seen you being extremely thoughtful and and uh, intentional about that. Tell me a little bit more. As a change manager yourself, how do you? Mm, involve and deploy informal leaders in a change process?
1: Uh, so I think every change process I've been involved in, you start off with a there's a there's an initial set of leaders that you're presented with as the leaders. Of and course. by the end of that process, those aren't the same set as the leaders you, as you end up with. So people do put their hands up. I mean, first and foremost, so you have to create that space where people can put their hands up. Um, and then I, you know, it's, it's always dangerous to categorize, but the broadly um, I look at champions, positive resistors and negative resistors. And champions are great, you know, and that obviously you need the political will at the top. So, you, you know, if the, if the top doesn't have that oh, championship right. role, champion role, then, you know, not going anywhere. But actually for me, the most interesting group are the positive resistors, because the reason they're resisting isn't to be difficult. The reason they're resisting is because they want the best answer. Mm -hmm. They want the most effective answer. And they can be anywhere in the organisation. They are the people that other people listen to. And if person X, who who might sit four levels down in the organisation, in a particular function, if they say, yeah, actually, this is where we should go, Mm -hmm. that just unlocks a whole lot of other people who then feel confident in this process must be doing something because person x who we've we've known admired respected they're okay with it so i think that's that's an interesting group for me i think negative resistors are negative resistors and you can put a lot of effort in um, and frankly you know they are you know they're great people as individuals working really hard yeah. but are, are frightened of seeing that that bigger picture so yeah i think that that group of positive resistors and enabling them to come into the space so you can use all sorts of mechanisms you know some of the more obvious ones about communication uh, and remembering communication isn't broadcast remembering that communication is two you know two ways two ways and and letting them set up groups work groups to work on work streams so when they come to you and say i think we need, really need to worry about this or think about how this works so great okay you know create your own work stream and subgroup and our, our job will be to try and interconnect that with everything else that's you know so i think then you've got energy you've got energy into the the system and don't change process without energy you can't if you haven't got the energy being brought in you can't create that yourself
0: no no so what you said about positive resistors uh was really interesting it made me think of um you know uh also uh, culture carriers, right? Some of these informal leaders are culture carriers. Yeah. They're not just ambassadors, but they're culture carriers. There are often nodes in a network where people will go and people want to watch and people want to emulate, right? They have a high symbolic value in the organization. And I think some of the the change processes that you and I have either observed or been a part of have probably underutilized the potential of these people and that makes me also think of uh um uh, concepts around change management like um uh, leandro Herrero's work on viral change for instance yeah yeah nice um
1: i, I would add one other thing on that, sure. which is that um across a big organization and certainly a multi-member ingo um you have often these positive resistors feel like a lone voice. So, you know, in in their particular function, they have respect from people around them who know that they do things. But some of the things they've been saying maybe for years about, you know, we need to stop doing this and start doing that. um, Or, you you know, the importance of this function um, is sometimes lost. And actually, when you've got a multi-member family, certainly, and you create a space for them to come together with their their opposite numbers if you like their Uh peers in other parts of what has been a um quite siloed organization Uh that's wonderful that you can see them then building the the energy themselves and co-creating solutions which are even more effective because they fit the whole system because they've got different positive resistors in the different parts, maybe different members, different affiliates, coming together and No, look, this is an answer. And that filters up, you know, chief execs, programme directors, finance directors do listen to these to these
0: people. right? And so that they feel, not only do they feel less lonely, but they uh, they yeah. create and generate more energy, as you said. Yeah, I mean, before. they start
1: with a the group therapy session, obviously. <laughs> you we'll know, say, this is, yeah, this is the problem I'm having, and they all turn out to totally have the same. And I think, culture, in terms of, Working culture, I think what I've seen is, um, you know, you can look at Hofstede and national cultures and language cultures and all this. Function, functional culture seems to me to, to transcend all of those. You know, you get
0: the IT. Can you just together. explain for our audiences what you mean by that? So, um,
1: so when I've uh, convened people or created that space where they can, you know, self-organise, um, if you get, I don't know, all the male people, talk like more so that's more like monitoring
0: network, evaluation and learning and
1: learning mm-hmm. and the finance people will talk like finance people and the people who are specialized in particular you know bits of humanitarian will, will speak their own language regardless of which member affiliate they come from regardless of which language is their, their primary language regardless of which part of the world they're in that's they have that um shared mindset shared understanding shared approach uh, right and that I think is that's yeah, something to harness and to be aware to of to
0: harness. Yeah, you yeah. I've noticed before that you really emphasize that. So we're we're already getting into the topic of kind of what kind of um, frameworks, formal or informal, just frameworks in your mind, right? Like what yeah. you, you you have always emphasized this aspect of positive resistors and functional cultures, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. As you know, there are tons and tons of frameworks and concepts around change management, right? It's a huge field, as you say. It's not just a huge process to be in or to be designing or helping shepherd, but it's also a huge field. It's been around for a couple of decades. It's very much private sector kind of informed initially. Uh, There are tons of them. So which of those frameworks and resources and tools that you have found to be out there, quote-unquote, have you found to be have most relevance to the NGO context?
1: So maybe maybe I'm uh, either unprofessional or just too too uh, curious. Uh, I, <laughs> to I suspect
0: this. the latter. <laughs> yes,
1: to do this in a systemic way. So yeah, well, obviously there's different there's different as you say different management consultancies, the big you know the big management consultancies. That you know there's lots of literature um, and so on and so on. Um, I I always come back to it's people centric. It's a people centric approach. So um,
0: what do you mean by it?
1: So I mean we talked about positive resistors, we've talked about energy, we talk about people creating yeah, you know, creating the answers that, that work for them. So I I don't think that um, any change leader should be in the support role, the sort of transformation director, change mm-hmm. director role, should be getting overly obsessed with doing the design work. Their job is to run a process mm. to that supports the right people to do the right bits of the design. So, you know, you need to get, you know, classic Cotter, you know, you need to get that coalition you need to articulate a vision, you need to communicate, communicate, communicate. So that's, you know, off the um, Cotter's eight steps. Fantastic. Always use that. Um, but then other, for other parts, and yeah, you know, I will go with what the context is with that organization so for me context and history and maybe this is because i'm a trained historian rather than a, a trained development professional uh, i think that it, that is everything because it frames the mindsets so if you're doing a people-centric approach you're looking at what the mindsets are what people have in terms of power or where they feel disempowered what they have to gain or lose etc etc so quite political i suppose ah. um, so that all of that i think and then the first two names I put on the team sheet. I don't know if that's a phrase that you you use in, in the states. No. Here, here when you when you're playing a competitive sport, you have to do the team sheet before the match. Uh, you would say who are the first two who are the first names on the team. I sheet? see. And so for me, any any organisation I work with, I always say I will help you with this, this, and this, but I need to have um, the communications person. I've got to have a communications person, and I've got to have the soft skills change person. So that's the person who understands the temperature of the organisation, can com- is constantly seeing where you know the ebbs and flows of uh, anxiety, hope, etc., etc. Who are you know who are on top of the meta Kubler Ross curve
0: for, ah. for the
1: organisation as a whole. So those two, for me, are, are are critical. Partly because they're not my strengths personally, but also you just can't get anywhere without those without those. Those two, um,
0: right? And just to functions. explain for our audience, you mentioned the kubla Ross. Tell yeah. me, uh, just quickly, so what that is.
1: So that's the grieving cycle, uh, where, where people go through denial, anger, you know, then up to maybe a bit of hope, opportunity, and then they might go back down again and up again. But ultimately, yeah, they get to beyond opportunity and okay, so let's manifest.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, some, I just want to make sure. Uh-huh.
1: But I think um, I think that's always been always been really important and actually being quite explicit about that and doing Ross training for for all the staff so they can they can be self-aware about where they're to, at it's okay and it's okay to be angry
0: yeah. it's
1: okay to be really cross with what the leadership is are doing and then i you know and then how do i engage as an individual so w- all of those things i i as i say i'm very interested in making sure those components are in place the design is you know is I think relatively easy compared to everybody going on that journey or the people who want to go on that journey, going on that journey.
0: Mm.
1: Um, And that again, comes back to probably, you've got to be clear about the purpose and the role. You've got to have the leadership, um, but also you've got to be open to an emergent change process rather than a point A to point B. You know, it's never a point A to point B. You mm. think, you know, what point B is, very early on in the process, then it's almost certainly going to be the wrong, the wrong point B because you haven't got all that collective wisdom input from the people who you do care, and do mm. know, who know their areas. So that's a that's how
0: I see it. Yeah, super super interesting. Um, I'm going to delve deeper on one more thing, and then we'll pivot to your your recent financial paper, yeah. um, and that is about uh, still a little deeper on this this. Um, the, the, the role of politics and power in change, in organizational change processes, right? Uh, so one of the things that you and I have talked about before is there's this one framework that um, that I used to work when I was at Circus University, used to use, rather, by Bowman and Deal, these four frames where, yes. you know, leaders can, uh, can choose to uh, choose their... Uh, leadership behavior strategically depending on what context, the way they see the context. And one of those contexts is the political frame, which is this idea that the organization amongst others is also a jungle where people jockey for power and for resources and for access to the top leader where there is a constant bargaining going on, right? Where we try to reduce our dependencies on others, etc. I'm curious how you see uh, leaders' ability to use the political frame, and I mean now from the context, from the perspective of using the political frame to uh, uh pursue the mission, not for petty self-interested or uh uh um uh, petty perspectives. How how um how competent have you seen change leaders use the political frame you think
1: uh, yes yeah, so that is a good question and uh, I like the four frames approach and I have to say I like the symbols and rituals corner that's my favorite I think um, because yeah. uh, that's that can be very transformational because it just changes the language and the mindset so where yeah, have I yeah. seen where have I seen leaders do that well um so ones who Understand servant leadership, I think, are the most effective. So, yeah, you're acquiring power through your ability to support others to achieve. You're acquiring power through uh, a recognition that you are someone that it is worth working with because you know what you're doing. But I think ultimately, because people can see that connection between the values and the mission. So, if you can demonstrate that what you're trying to do, particularly from a change or transformation perspective, is to achieve the mission and not to be about petty power, petty yeah. power. If you're willing to give away, I mean, the more power you get, well, my personal learning is the more power you give away, the more you end up with. And just because there's more in the system, and so you are able, not, not more that you have at your disposal, uh-huh. but there is more power there created. So that's something that's basic sort of empowerment. Uh, Thinking, I know. So when I see people being servant leaders, that works really well. Where they are territorial, that's it's it's not good for them either. That's the that's the irony because you are you become at best uh, it becomes at best a zero sum game
0: Uh as opposed
1: to that giving away power that servant leadership. So yeah, so the negative is definitely yeah, it's definitely when they are often unconsciously doing that. I'd say one other thing on the, the power piece, which is I have said many times and doesn't always resonate with people that because of the, the sector we work in,
0: uh-huh.
1: we forget how much our identity is wrapped up in the organisation as well. So I used to be able to say, you know, I, I am the director of strategy for Oxfam International. Five words that told everyone that who was a friend of mine or family, you know, that's what I care about. Uh, that's the sort of thing. Even if they didn't know what strategy was, right? I, uh, okay, so you know, I get, I get that, um, and I, I knew that I was emotionally invested uh, with that, and I was very flattered when I got that particular title. It was just as useful, I think, in a way as me hoovering the floors of shops when we opened where we opened Oxfam shops a <laughs> new shop. You know, I used to do the same thing. and I used to be proud of doing that as well. So I think that but that emotional emotion being emotion, emotionally invested, with your personal identity or being being locked up with it. Um, I think not enough people are aware of that or self-aware of that.
0: I Uh, so agree with you.
1: And it becomes an obstacle um, because it comes to you can't, yeah, you can't leave that change if you're, if you're also connected, which is also why Kubler-Ross is very useful (laughs) in a way, because people aren't just grieving about the potential loss of their job. They're grieving about the potential loss of their, their identity with their yes. friends and their families, etc. So,
0: yes, yes. Yeah, and
1: one other thing, just on that, it's just you know, I know it's not the power piece, but going back to the kubla Ross piece, is creating space for celebrating and grieving.
0: I think mm. is really important. Mm. that's that's the 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 culture piece, the symbolic yeah. frame, right? Yes. yes.
1: And I think in that um, that links to the identity piece because if people, what you never want to say to someone is, we need to go in this direction. And imply that everything that someone spent their last twenty years doing has been worthless. Exactly. You really have to get that, uh, yeah, Especially with positive resistors and others, going, yeah, that was fantastic for that time. Yeah. We now, yeah. Need, we now need to go in this very different direction. And how do we build? How do we build that? Anyway, okay. that's on this slide. But yeah, the power where people are servant leaders, where they are conscious of it, where they understand it's so their identity is mapped up, and they you know, can manage that. I think those are all, those are. All good things where people dig their heels in and want to play bargaining games they disempower themselves as well as the system as a whole
0: yes so and right. everybody loses yes yeah. and we've seen plenty of examples of that too uh, I it, it's so fantastic to talk to you because i feel uh, we we so often resonate i'm gonna pivot now so you have recently were in the middle of the pandemic right it is uh, May two thousand twenty. You recently wrote an, uh, a piece, uh, an article, a uh, uh, brief, uh, particularly I think focused on on senior leaders and boards, right, of global North founded NGOs, where you're doing some projections on the pretty uh, dire financial um, situation that you expect will will be the fallout from from the pandemic for those NGOs. And how boards and senior teams should react strategically to that. Tell me a little bit about how you think that financial picture will will evolve over the next couple of years, as it relates to COVID, and what do you think CEOs and boards should do?
1: So let's take let's take one of those and then come back on the other because there's a lot. Fair there. enough. <laughs> so uh, on the on the financial side, on the funding side. Um, and I, I know I've been saying this for a, quite a few years now. I think we, as NGOs, INGOs, are we have some cognitive dissonance about the how the funding and our existential challenges uh, link up, But we pretend that they don't. And we are, you know, focused on so focused on the mission that everything is program led and as it should be and community led, etc. Um, and that's been okay in the years from certainly uh, 09 through to about 16 so if you I've done this piece but I've looked at the longitudinal trends um, for many of the big ones there's a cohort of seven for which I have the data yeah uh, where the data is robust enough that you can do the trends and you can see that 03 to 09 there was a slow and steady growth you know and then there was a phase 09 to 16 when there was Despite the, the financial crisis, there was a rapid, uh, rapid growth phase, and actually from sixteen onwards, and this is all the families and you know, sector as a whole, there's been there was a flattening and then a decline already in two thousand and eighteen. So the trend has hasn't been one of growth, growth, growth with you know more rapid, less rapid. Um, it's been steady, rapid, flatten, decline. Um, and, in you know over the longer longer term, we always said, "Oh well, the next big emergency will then take the whole sector up, and you know you never come down as far as you were before that, but we've not had a four year period like we had from fifteen sixteen through to pre covid where it just flattened and declined That's a long period for mm. for a flattening and decline so I think there's that that is something that was evident pre covid and there are a number of factors that go on there, one is um Institutional funding, everyone's got very, very, not everyone, but many INGOs have got very dependent on institutional funding and from very few sources. So when that changes, that's one problem. The, obviously, the political environment, political and social environment is a lot more hostile than it was pre, let's be clear about it, pre- November twenty sixteen elections and pre the referendum in the UK, you know, yeah. surfaced a surfaced a, a political environment that was already there. We've we've seen greater attacks on INGOs and in the sector because of what what they they stand for in that sense. So I think you've seen a few markets, dependency on a, on particular institutional funders, focused in. There's basically five markets that most most of the money comes from and you're dependent on the public and the institutional funding in those in those places from the public side it's all saturated it's really hard to to grow without huge investment and the rates of return are terrible compared to where they were Uh. 20 years ago when i started so you've got this you've got this nexus of problems which were already existing and had been for a number of years prior to covid and i think the pandemic what it does is just accelerate the decline or the problems that we already saw so indebted governments um won't be having you know lots of spare money to put into international development their populaces will not be clamoring for you know for politicians in their mandates the mandates they're giving them won't be around 0.7 you know only five of the DAC donors now give 0.7 um where before I was, yeah, a huge number. So, yeah, so we're in an environment where COVID, I think, has just accelerated. And as we come out of the other side, we'll have not necessarily just the nativism problem, but an understandable people saying, actually, we've got to rebuild our own country, yeah. our own communities, etc. So I think there's that challenge. The political mandate is then lost, which will also hit the institutional funding. So the reason I say all of that is, it was a pre-COVID problem. And I think the the cognitive dissonance I was talking about was when times were good, people were seeing, ah, you know, institutional funding can grow the organization. The more, the bigger the organization is, is an approximation for, for impact, great. But over the last few years, the existential element, the uh-huh. need for the funding has changed, has changed people's interaction with it not always intentionally
0: that's a that's a pretty depressing picture but uh, i uh i fear it's a very realistic picture so what um in a nutshell what are are your main recommendations to senior teams and 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 boards i mean
1: there's the it's a it's a adage which is maybe slightly painful but you know you don't waste a good crisis in terms of from a change perspective so i think this is the this is an opportunity to really make some decisions make some strategic decisions so at you know we are in may people are doing scenario planning completely understand that's where you need to be Uh what's my cash flow going to be for the next you know three months six months twelve months completely understand that um but I think this is the moment to say you know what what do we need to be in order to achieve the mission uh, for the for the future and I, I think there's four dimensions for me for that and the first one is something I touched on earlier role and relevance now is the time to really understand from your wider set of stakeholders your critical friends across the piece What's the most useful role that you can play? Uh Where are you relevant? Um, And being honest about your strengths and your weaknesses. Not the ones necessarily that you hold up as strengths. Some of the things where you say, oh, we're the unique expert on X or Y, really critique that. So I think Uh. role, relevance, and yeah, getting those critical friends in. So that's one area. Leading from that, uh, following that is, focus you've got to you've got to say this is the time where we where we take the things that we aren't expert at and now that we've done the exercise we know we're not expert at yeah. drop those be way way more focused on the thematic areas the geographies the program approaches etc so you, the mandate piece can we do all three many organizations try to do humanitarian long term development and advocacy can you really do all three are you skilled and can you do it across multiple geographies and can you really do it over multiple themes and sub themes so focus um a very simple uh, third one which is around just projections financial projections for the future so i know a number of organizations are we're either mid-process uh, or uh, towards the end of the process, and they were set, setting financial targets, which showed growth. Um, yeah. Five-year tenure. Year. Don't don't set don't set growth targets. Almost certainly, uh, the money is not going to be there. And actually, really do think about whether being smaller is actually going to achieve more impact if you're doing the things that you are actually expert in, where your role and relevance uh, works. So that's a third one. Um, Although do protect protect the public awareness and grassroots community connectedness
0: uh-huh, uh, uh-huh.
1: and then the fourth is thinking about members and growth. Uh, thinking about it maybe in a different way, um, so revisit your your rationale for growing your members of the organisation, your national members. Uh, is it is that really realistic? And combined with that is what is your organisation's response to localization? Because I think a number of the Northern INGOs have seen a route to growth being actually create Southern members. Yep. I, I, as, a, as someone who passionately believes in global balance, I can see that as a mechanism, but that's not necessarily what Southern civil society is telling us it wants. It doesn't. Um, no, it really doesn't. So I think now is the time to revisit Revisit those ideas, and maybe you know there's different ways of achieving it. Maybe you have fewer northern members by merging some of those ones that are struggling within your family. Uh, Maybe merging with another organisation. Maybe saying, look, we're good at this. What is it that we need to acquire, opportunistically? Because some organisations are going to go to the wall. We know that. And how do I acquire that to make make our our organisation stronger in the area that we can work in? So yeah, four things. Role relevance, focus, financial reality, um, and then growth. Members, what is yeah? What is it you really want your organisation
0: combined
1: your family to look like? So that yeah, yeah, that would yeah. be my suggestion.
0: Wow, that was a wide-ranging um, explanation on the financial projections and on on responses that we, uh, especially as leaders, can can make to that. So. Um, I will definitely um, in the show notes put a link to um, your email because you've already given me permission for that. Um, yep. You're also going to write a guest blog on um, my Five Oaks uh, Consulting site where uh, people can get the, this summary uh, because I really would like a lot of people to uh, to be able to read that. Um, Barney, we have to bring this uh, episode to a close. It's been such a delight to, to talk to you, although the last topic is not exactly delightful. It's, it's a very, um, it's a pretty uh, tough picture. Uh, and um, yeah, I, um, I, I just think that it's better to be honest to ourselves at this moment uh, because I think that there is a crucial role um for many of us but we're, but we have to come to terms with some some realities where indeed this crisis can be an opportunity for changes that maybe our sector and some of us individually as NGOs were overdue for anyway yeah. Yeah. so with that let me uh, finish by asking where can people find out more about you
1: um, so if you look on my LinkedIn you'll find me on there there are, the advantage of having a unique name is there's only one Barney Tallick on, on LinkedIn. Yes. Uh, likewise, you know, people feel free to email me. Um, so Barney Tallick at gmail. Uh, dot I'll com. put it so in the show
0: notes. Both of Thank these. you very
1: much. No, that's that's yeah. good. So yeah, you you can track me down fairly easily. There's, there's only one, there's only one Barney Tallick, So uh, that's
0: handy. That's we'll put all of it in show notes. Right. And so I want to thank you Barney again for this, this, um, such a stimulating conversation and I want to thank all of you listeners today uh, for listening this is Tosca and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO Soul and Strategy next time thanks for listening to NGO Soul and Strategy If you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find posts on topics related to what we discussed today. That's five, as in the number five, oaksconsulting.org. You can also find free white papers there, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about the upcoming book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, of which I'm a co-author and which will be published in June 2020. Or feel free to email me at Tosca tosca.5oaksconsulting.org at and follow me on my social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or any of the places where you get your podcasts so that others can find it too. So, until we talk again, this is Tosca at NGO Soul & Strategy, the podcast for leaders who look change right in the eye.